He is a scamp. George Clooney is at heart a scamp. He's a rapscallion. He's a prankster. He has a pig. Watching Movies at the Bar, a podcast about bar movies and movie bars. I'm Thomas, and uh, joined by, as always, Bethy Squires. Bethy, how's it going? I am doing good. Thomas, how are you doing? I'm uh, I'm doing really well. I'm uh, feeling especially good because we're joined by one of the loveliest people I've ever met in my life, and that is good Mr. Lord. Ben Meckler, a seasoned... Flatterer. <laughs> seasoned screenwriter, a guy who has broken the internet uh, on a monthly basis now for about three years, uh, assuming that <laughs> Mashable is your internet. Um, ben, what am I missing? You've also directed a bunch of shit that's great. Yeah, that about covers it. I'm a, I'm a listen, I'm a father, a follower of Christ. Um, <laughs> that's not true. I'm Jewish. But um, that's it. That sounds pretty good. I don't know. I like to take pictures. I like to hang out outside when I can. Um, is this a personals ad or is it more just like an intro? Because that's a, probably all you need for an intro. I have not met Ben, per se. We have been <laughs> in the same movie theater, but did not see each other. We were both at oh, the yeah. double feature at the New Bev for... Uh, it was Dracula's daughter and uh, the, hunger. the hunger, and that hunger. was the last Ooh. time I was in a movie theater, I believe. Same, and, um, and probably for will be for a long forever. time. <laughs> but I was uh, getting ready for Lesbian Vampire October, which is a themed month that we're getting close to doing some prep work. Mm. And I knew Ben was there, and Ben I think knew I was there, but we both had only seen each other's like Twitter avies, and so a yep. dark room with masks on all looking forward to the same screen. A bad way to try and meet for the first time. True. Didn't it's true. Mm-hmm. I tried wearing, I have this hat that has a little propeller on the top, and if you spin it, it kind of mm. makes like a woo sound, and I kept working it, hoping that <laughs> maybe if you were in the room, you'd kind of spot it, you'd eyeball it, and know that that was me, but um, uh, instead I just wound up levitating a few inches off the ground most of the night. <laughs> I did see somebody just sort of lightly tactfully levitating in a beanie propeller and i was like mm-hmm. that's cool i wonder where it ben is me. i yeah. didn't put two and two together that was my bad yeah it's actually still hot glued to my head which i had to do so it wouldn't fly off when the propeller spun really fast Sure, because when you lift you want to you don't want the hat exactly. to just lift you want to come along mm-hmm. i think in a couple months i'll have enough hair grown in to kind of shave it off but it's still there <laughs> While all of this was happening, I was sitting in the back row with my jaw just hanging open in awe of Tony Scott's sound design, and now I feel like a fucking idiot. (laughs) Yeah, it's far less impressive than my propeller hat. (laughs) It's pretty good sound design in that movie. It's a good film. The Hung? The Hunger? The Hung. Tony Scott's The Hung. The Hung? (laughs) We watched Dracula's Daughter. I wouldn't call The Hunger Camp per se, but... I would call Dracula's Daughter Camp, and I would call the movie that we're here to discuss Camp, Batman and Robin. Oh, High Camp. Absolutely. Yeah. Profoundly campy, even. Mm Mm-hmm. But first, we wanted to talk a little bit about your life experience with watching 
movies at bars? Is that a thing you enjoy to do or not so much? You know what? Having not anticipated the question, my honest answer is I don't I don't do it too much. My relationship to watching movies at bars is probably more you know, I don't hang out at bars a ton and have it not for any particular reason other than I feel like throughout my life my friend hangouts have often been let's go to a movie and then let's go like get dinner after and talk about it or like walk around and talk about it. Um, so I'm realizing now that I haven't spent a ton of time at bars. That said, anytime a movie is playing at a bar and actually a a prominent example sticking out in my mind is Thomas's last birthday party that I attended. I am pretty much fixated on whatever's playing and that is where all of my attention goes. And anyone I talk to the rest of the evening, the conversation will very quickly drift over to, Hey, which movie is that? I feel like <laughs> I know it. I've seen it, but I can't because it does feel like a lot of the bar movies are like something that doesn't get a lot of play somehow where you kind of have to puzzle out like, well, I know I've seen this. I recognize all the actors. I've seen this scene before, but it's like one of those movies I've seen once a long time ago. To me, that feels like the kind of the kind of movie I see most often at a bar. All that to say that uh, I will pick movies over interacting with another human being uh, nine times out of ten. And so when a movie's <laughs> playing at a bar, uh, that's where my attention goes. Movie. It's actually, it's a it's a crutch I've been looking for a few times lately when I've gone to bars. And I think it's it's partly a product of, you know, after the amount of time I spent in my apartment the last 12 plus months, I just... Oh, you I, did that too? Yeah, no, I uh, I thought it would be cool, um, yeah. but I I feel like I I un unwound a, a lot of the social progress that I've made in my life, and so sometimes I just am overextended, and I'm like, oh fuck, I need something to look at. I get that. I think uh, you know, next time just pull your phone out, and start watching a movie. <laughs> <laughs> do you know, do you guys have the Netflix app? Do you, have you do you, have you checked this out? Yeah, I do. It's pretty cool. They got like a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, they got Money Heist. Um, I don't know what it is, but I love the title. <laughs> They've also got Coin Heist. I was just imagining somebody like whipping out Orange is the New Black on their phone rather than talk to me and having a nice time in my sort of mind palace, imagining what that would be like. I wanted to say before we get into the movie proper, I made a themed drink for this tonight. I made Venom. Wow. I'm going to hold it up to the camera. Oh, hell yeah. So this is... Basically, it's so green. Just a a gin ricky, so like lime, gin, and seltzer. But then I added a little blue curacao to get it a little bit greener, mm. and then it got too blue, so I had to scramble around in my cupboard, and I happened <laughs> to have yellow food coloring, so I got it looking. There you go. Just right. I I noticed we're all drinking very colorful drinks right now. This is very like Schumacher on theme. I can't. There's mine. What is I'm that? I'm drinking. Ben? It's a it's a passion fruit gin and tonic that that uh, my wife Kirby whipped up for me right before we started recording with some passion fruits from our garden. That looks incredible. I can see seeds and and flesh in the bottom of the tumbler. It looks a bit like out of a Del Toro movie. Like like, (laughs) totally does right. Like it's like it's eggs that will hatch towards like the end of the third act, and and the villain will have to command them or something. Yeah. Absolutely. Or maybe they're nice. They're misunderstood. 
passion fruit action. That that sounds that sounds even more Del Toro. I can't believe we haven't done a Del Toro movie yet on the pod. I like almost Play all two. of them. Yeah, I go to it. bat for Crimson Peak. I think that's a really cool and and lush movie. Um, uh, but I'm I'm drinking a, a pina colada because I think this is a uh, a raucous and indulgent party of a movie, and this feels like the right energy. Yes, it's very tropical, a very festive movie. It's great because you have the two villains of this piece, Poison Ivy and Mister Freeze, are should not really be in the same movie because their vibes are so clashy. You've got. You've got this like jungle princess thing going on, especially the way that Schumacher and Uma do it, where she is like specifically tropical plants is like her bag for like the whole movie. And then, but then you have Mr. Freeze who cannot let anything live because he lives in ice and his heart only thaws for his bride. It is really interesting as a follow up to Batman Forever where. Uh, the two villain approach. I mean, so, so obviously that was like a precedent set in Batman Returns, right? Where it was like, oh, it's Catwoman and Penguin, and the the bit here is it's like uh, a very like aggressive sexual character and like a caged animal kind of energy, like monster villain. And then in the third movie, they found like good chemistry between like Two Face and Riddler, where they're like, oh, Riddler's annoying. Two Face, <laughs> who's very like business like when he doesn't have his like frantic side showing and then in this one it was really interesting because it did feel like they were they were running out of like super popular batman villains and they were like uh poison ivy mr freeze (laughs) and i love the weird chemistry they have that's like kind of hostile the whole time between them (laughs) but at the same time it's like poison ivy clearly lusts for his power um and does some pretty nasty stuff to manipulate mr freeze along the way and then he has no interest in her whatsoever until uh, she manipulates him into being sort of driven by revenge. But yeah, it's like a very, it's not like a Tracy Hepburn energy necessarily, but there's definitely <laughs> like a, this weird, like hostile, like first act of a rom-com energy between them, the whole movie, which I think is cool. Cause it does feel like they decided on the villains first. And then we're like, I guess we'll figure out like what their relationship would be like <laughs> in this movie and it wound up being very cool and unusual i like it it very much it does feel like the idea first of all the idea of a heterosexual poison ivy is anathema to me i do not accept it i will not see it i do not see it <laughs> bethy she's um she's sapiosexual in this movie oh yeah she's just attracted mm-hmm. to intellect um yeah but it's She's cryosexual. It's powers <laughs> that does it for her. That's the only thing that does it for her. But it does yeah. kind of feel like it is not to be too reductive, but it it does feel like an outsider's perspective on what heterosexuality must be like, based on like what maybe Joel has seen like around. It's like, well, I think this is how you guys do it. I don't know. I don't get it. And as, speaking again as somebody who is not entirely within an insider's perspective of heterosexuality, it's like, yeah. Men and women don't like each other very much, and yet they fuck. What's going on there? Just, like, trying to figure it out. I'm really floored, sorry, by this concept you're introducing of Joel Schumacher queering heterosexuality. Because I do think think that's uh, astute uh, and is further unlocking this incredible movie for me. We're going to go back a little bit. We're going to get back to the actual beginning of the movie, how we came to it and stuff. But I do want to say... 
this does get into my larger concept that I have in my head of a heterosexual camp that movies can mm. be gay camp or straight camp. And I think this movie is more gay camp than it is straight camp, but straight camp exists. There are things that are so straight that they've gone back around and are gay again. Uh, Vanderpump rules yeah, 300, being a primary example. 300, 300 for sure. For sure. 100%. Um, the bridal industry. A lot of yeah. things. I would say the number of scenes that take place in a Turkish bath in this movie puts it pretty firmly in the camp of, of gay camp. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get too deep, though, should we ask Ben about his experience with Batman and Robin? Ben, I, this you jumped to this title when I asked you what yeah. you wanted to talk about. So what, what's your history with Batman and Robin? Oh, this is genuinely one of my favorite movies. When I was like eight, this came out in theaters, right? 97. So I was eight years old. Uh, it was all I could think about until it came out. <laughs> I went to uh, whether it was Burger King, McDonald's, wherever they were doing the toys. I was tr- I was trying to collect them. I loved. I wanted the poster so bad with all the different colors and different characters' faces around in a circle. I was like, "That's perfect poster design." They put everyone in the movie's face on there. I could not wait. I went opening weekend. Begged my parents to take me. They were hyped to take me. Been a been a fan of the Batman movies since I was like three. And Batman <laughs> Returns came out, and for some reason, my mom was like. It's probably fine for you to watch. Um, (laughs) And uh, loved it. I probably didn't even really realize that it had a reputation for being bad until I was older. Because when you're a kid, like, you don't really give a shit about, like, the critical reception of a movie. And certainly when you're eight years old, Batman and Robin is, like, delivering what you want. uh, Especially if you're, like, an eight-year-old who's a fan of the animated series. So, loved it then. Went to high school, became like a movie kid, you know, reading Ain't It Cool News or whatever movie sites, and realized that it had like a reputation as a terrible movie, and I was like, oh, weird. Didn't revisit it for a while. DVD set came out with all four of them in a nice box set, and I was like, oh, I gotta get that. The All four being Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin, of course. Um, I think they came out like in anticipation of releasing Batman Begins. Grab the DVD set, Rewatch all the movies. Once again, reminded that Batman and Robin absolutely fucking rules. Um, And actually, my best friend around the same time, Walter Holman, uh, was like, oh, Batman and Robin's like my favorite Batman movie. And so because I had a buddy who like had my back on this, that Batman and Robin is great. I've spent very a very small amount of my life even needing to be aware of the fact that most people don't like this movie. Um, but I feel very strongly that it is definitely like the best Bruce Wayne movie and that it finally advances him past like the same exact fucking story we've seen in every single Batman movie with him trying to cope with the death of his parents. It gives him a new story. It develops him in a great way. It's very sweet. Um, and, uh, I also think, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the adventures of Batman and Robin, like the old Adam West show. Um, and a particularly a huge fan of the movie Lorenzo Semple Jr. wrote the Batman and Robin movie, which I think is one of the funniest comedies like ever written period. It's hysterically funny. And to me, this movie is the closest to like a modern adaptation of that approach to adapting a comic book, which is like, let's be silly. Let's be fun. Let's be operatic. Um, but honestly, it's a movie where like, I I think every time I watch it, I like it more. (laughs) It's just been that way since I was a kid. Like, I was rewatching it uh, today in anticipation of recording this podcast, and I'm just still stunned by the sheer... It's such a breath of fresh air to see a big-budget movie now that's, like, got sets. 
Yeah, yeah, Ma- yeah. Ma- yeah. The sets are massive, incredible. The sets, massive, the gorgeously lit, practical yeah. sets, imprinted on those sets, stunning costumes. And then you read about like how borderline dangerous it was to even put people in some of these costumes. <laughs> um, and they just like did it for the sake of the movie being fucking cool. Um, there's also some really early CG in it that still kind of looks good that holds up in a weird way, like full like human body CG, which is like for a time was what people struggled with the most. Um, I mean, some of it looks better than stuff in like matrix reloaded. So, <laughs> so I don't know. It's, uh, it's a great movie. I love Batman and Robin. I know this isn't a monologue, so I'll hold some of my thoughts for, for when we, we dig into more specific aspects of the film. No, I actually, I think, I, I hope I speak for Bethy and myself when I say you can monologue the whole time if you want, but a thing that you great. Said that- so another thing I really like about the movie, <laughs> uh, a thing that you said that really resonated with me, though, is I saw this movie when I was... I'm a, I'm a few years younger than you, Ben. I saw this movie when I was four, but mm-hmm. I did see it when it came out, and I had the VHS, and it was a movie I put on all the time. And just like you, it didn't occur to me that a movie could be bad at all, um, but right. specifically that this movie could be bad. Like, I didn't have an understanding of tone. I didn't have an understanding of comedy. I didn't have an understanding of earlier iterations of batman it didn't it, it it didn't occur to me that this didn't rock i loved how it looked i loved how colorful it was how cool schwarzenegger's suit was um and there was like a close-up on batman's butt in like the first three minutes yeah. of the movie and i was like that's what you do in a batman movie you got to get the close-up of his butt maybe two times mm-hmm. um and then just like well, they show you, batman's and then they show robin's butt right yeah the butts uh, and dongers and Batman's mm-hmm. better. He's got a better butt in this movie, I think, than uh, Chris O'Donnell. But um, yeah, I revisited it uh, this week for the first time in 15 years, and I had the best time. Mm-hmm. Yep. I also watched this movie when I was young. I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it, I got it as a VHS and then made my parents buy it for me because I became obsessed uh, I watched this. There were a couple different movies when I was a kid that I would watch and then rewind and start watching again. Like there were days <laughs> that I spent watching this movie and The Wizard of Oz and the Brenda Starr movie for reasons that are <laughs> huh. kind of totally the same, that movie, um, to this one. But I, yeah, I had no idea that this movie was considered bad. I was just obsessed with Uma Thurman in this movie and her hair and her uh, weird eyebrows, her like divine eyebrows. Um, And then, yeah, I think I was made aware that this was the quote unquote bad one that like ruined the franchise that Christopher Nolan had to like save us from. And I think because I'm a contrary bitch as the Nolan movies got more and more popular and it became even more like the, the party line that this is how you do Batman I got more and more stuck in my, no, I like Batman and Robin. <laughs> I want him to have a family. I want him to love his butler dad. And oh, yeah. he should be somewhat well-adjusted and not like motivated by trauma all the time. He should be motivated sometimes by horny, sometimes by friendship. There's lots of reasons a Batman It's a pretty even Batman. 50-50 split, yeah, mm-hmm. in this one, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, I think, goes to... My next question for both of you is, what do you want from a Batman story? We've gotten so many different versions of the character, both on film, TV, cartoon, comics. What do you like when in a Batman? Hmm. 
I mean, the villains are the thing for me. Uh, a Batman film for me is made or or, uh, or ruined by its villains a lot of the time. This one, I think, and another reason that I like Batman and Robin so much, the Bat family in the movie is actually interesting and fun to watch. But for me, yeah, it's villains, uh, interesting, weird villains, and, and a man, nay, a Batman, trying to figure out how to confront and defeat them. Um, and then also I'm a big fan of, and I will say this is something that does not happen much in Batman and Robin or the Schumacher Batmans in general, really a lot of the early ones that Nolan did do pretty well is I do like when Batman is terrifying to criminals. I enjoy that stuff a lot. I'm a big fan in the dark Knight of the, the absurdly long, um, borderline war crimey sequence in which Batman just fucking books it across the globe and kidnaps a man out of his office building and just like dumps him at the foot foot of like a courthouse. And I was like, okay, it's cool. when Batman does that Batman. I would be absolutely fucking terrified of this man. If I were a criminal, he has seemingly limitless resources <laughs> and will grab me out of any building anywhere in the world at any time and uh, have me arrested. So yeah, Batman being scary and cool villains, ideally monstrous villains that are like literally monsters. That's my bag, baby. I I think I have an appreciation for kind of all different iterations of Batman, with the exception of the Snyder stuff, which doesn't really connect for me, and not because I think Snyder is, like, objectively bad or something, it's just not really my thing, but I love The Dark Knight, I love the way that it's very referential of, like, Michael Mann movies, I love that Batman is, like, a consummate professional, and I love that it's it's it feels like it has soul weight, it's, it's, uh, it, it, I don't know. It's like philosophical. I like all of that. I actually have grown to like The Dark Knight Rises and that I think it's Nolan's kind of answer to Batman and Robin. And obviously Nolan being a virgin and wearing a suit, he could never make the sort of camp that Joel Schumacher could make. But I do think The Dark Knight Rises is really kooky. Um, and I like that. But as I was watching Batman and Robin today, this is maybe the ideal version of batman for me and uh, bethy i think i'm like you in a little bit in 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 ways where i think i'm reactive i think the fact that people don't like this movie i think the fact that the tone of superhero movies has turned so far away from this movie makes me want to vouch for it but i think it's really fun and like ben said the costumes the set all of all of the practical elements are really pretty to look at and i think the tone is just wacky. Like, I'm not that interested in Deadpool stuff. I'm not that interested in self-awareness. But stuff that just gets into this zany camp realm really connects for me at this point in my life. I'll also say something visually this movie does that people do not give it credit for is the action, like the scenes where Batman's actually fighting, are good. They look cool. I remember a lot of people saying, like, oh, you know, Batman Begins is really good, but yet again, they couldn't make it cool to watch someone fighting in the bat suit because he can barely move around. I feel like this movie compensates really well in that the camera's really dynamic. It almost moves like a lot of the Honestly it reminds me of a lot of like the nineties Hong Kong action movies, the way that the camera moves during the fight scenes in, in Batman and Robin, where the the sort of thrust and dynamicism of the camera give the bat suit fight scenes a lot more like agility and movement than the actor was really able to do in that suit. Um, so they are actually cool to look at and fun to watch. The choreography is not like amazing, but it's, it's fun. The mooks are doing a certain amount of heavy lifting too, of like selling the fight. 
And then, of course, mm-hmm. also the like Hanna Barbera music light, like the sound effects library oh, yeah. on loan from Scooby Doo, is also giving a lot me of a banana lot. peel slips. <laughs> yeah. um, Bethy, one thing that m- maybe this will connect for you. When I was watching this yesterday, I was like, "Oh, this." Um, obviously, there are elements of of queer camp, but it felt to me almost like the most that a Batman movie could ever feel like an early Derek Jarman movie, like <laughs> Wittgenstein or like Edward II. It's just, it it feels like a set. It's almost Brechtian. You really feel the filmmaker's perspective in the space. Um, yeah, I think I love this movie. It definitely, the sets definitely explore what Gotham, like, psychosexual architecture is like the only way i can really describe gotham is like oh big nude guys a lot of big nude guys a lot of like very curvy buildings a lot of like domed like titty roofs it's Mm -hmm. it's great i think you're you really bringing something up that (laughs) we're talking about the virgin nolan versus the chad joel schumacher and this is incredible uh Joel Schumacher's on record, though, saying that he slept with hundreds, if not thousands, of men. And oh, I, love I have that it written about down. Him. Oh, okay, great. Thomas, yeah. 10 to 20,000 men. King, king, king. Incredible. How many days... How, okay, 365 <laughs> days in a year. Mm-hmm. 10 to 20,000? Correct. He said? Yes. So, just looking at the low, just looking at the low number, right? So, 10,000... Divide, I got the calculator out. Divided by 365 is 27.39. So <laughs> this seems plausible. I mean, he was pretty old when he died, right? Was he Is he 80? In his 80s, I think, yeah. In his 80s? So in, in theory, he spent, you know, his sexual prime was like 60 years or more. So yeah, it seems entirely plausible, you know? If he was if he was boning a dude like every other day for most of his life, I also oh, feel no, like he shoots. I was gonna say he shoots groups, groups so well. Right. He has a handle on ensembles. Yeah, I, when he does I see... get blocking pretty clean for for a large group scene. Okay, Ivy's henchman. He's like, I've I've been there. You know. <laughs> yeah, I know how. I know to how to make ten attention. people in a room look good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I see it. Yeah, this seems very plausible. 10 to 20,000. Because before he did film, he was working in, I believe, hair and music, like in, in like New York, Studio 54 era, was working in like that industry. So I think that's where, well, let's say 5,000 of the 20 maybe was like <laughs> disco orgies. I thought you were going to say hair and makeup, and then you said hair in music but it sounded like he said hair and music and then my brain was just trying to concoct like the job that would have you styling hair and composing music <laughs> as like your full-time job I was like i guess like early studio system people wore a lot of hats um it's plausible that someone may have been been a hair and music person <laughs> i think well yeah he was um he was a production designer that's right he was in fashion first that's what it was. i couldn't remember mm-hmm. whether he was in hair or music but i'm so sorry he was actually in fashion. He worked at Henry Bendel, the department store, and then eventually started working in like production design after getting some real good pre-AIDS crisis fucking done in New York. You can definitely tell that he worked in production design watching any of his movies, but absolutely this movie. The sets are just gorgeous. And they use every inch of them. It's so cool. 
I think this movie has affected my aesthetic more than almost any other movie. It might be this one and like, I don't know, gentlemen prefer blondes or something or cruel intentions also. Mm-hmm. But I did notice that you're sitting in a massive stone hand. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see it right now, but my headboard is a bunch of fake flowers that I move. Think I can move my camera. Oh, yeah. Fake flowers. Then you got a purple neon light back there. Yeah. I do just want to live in a derelict Turkish bath covered in fake Mm. flowers. That's that's the goal. Bethy, now that you mentioned this movie uh, influencing your aesthetic so heavily, it makes me think about the live action Scooby-Doo movies and how I think that's Raja Gosnell doing his best to emulate the energy of Batman and Robin. And I know you love those movies. Big time. This is all coming into a sharper relief for me. Are you more of a Scooby-Doo Prime or a Monsters Unleashed kind of girl? Prime. Um, again, to make Velma straight is a mistake. Get that out of my face. Mm. I don't want to see it. Uh, I love a Tiki vibe, so you got to go for the OG. <laughs> Plus, uh, Plus a Mr. solid Bean? Rowan Atkinson performance. <laughs> yeah. I was about to say, yeah. Ben is the Mr. Bean authority, not to do too much of a detour here. Okay. I'm a big Bean guy. How many people have said they're Bean guys on this show and we need we just need to actually do Mr. Bean's holiday for a dang old episode? It was Ben. It was Siddhant Adlaka, who yeah. is a mm-hmm. friend of Ben. Um, mm-hmm. Anyone else? Good friend of mine. I know J.D. Dillard's a huge Bean guy. Have you had J.D. on the show? No, we got to get yet. him on, though, if he's a Bean guy. <laughs> he's a huge Bean guy. <laughs> and our producer's a huge Bean guy. Mm. Big on Bean. Um, so let's... Now that we've discussed Joel Schumacher's uh, sexual exploits, let's discuss his filmic ones. Um, I guess I'll do like a little flyover of the plot of the movie, because I think the plot does, I think the plot matters in this movie to a certain extent. I feel comfortable saying that. I would say so. So once again, it's business as usual in Gotham City, which means that Batman and Robin are out fighting crime. Right now, they're dealing with Mr. Freeze, who is the new heat in town, or cold, as the case may be. Uh, We find out that Mr. Freeze is trying to save his wife from stage four makeumabitis. I don't remember the name of the fake disease that that she has. Uh, McGregor Syndrome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. McGregor Syndrome. Yeah, McGregor Syndrome. Named after Jack Whitehall's character in Jungle Cruise, who tragically mm-hmm. died of that as soon as the movie ended. Yeah. We're all really sad about that. So he's stealing diamonds because he needs diamonds to make one because his cold suit eats diamonds, obviously. I think we all knew that. And then also because he's about to make a freeze raid to hold the city hostage in order to get funding to cure McGregor's syndrome. Uh, this is mm-hmm. an indictment of Big Pharma. Meanwhile, in an unnamed South American jungle, Dr. Pamela Isley discovers that Dr. Jason Woodrow is creating Bane. This movie does Bane quite dirty. Uh, they, It's this like toxin called venom that they create and that Bane gets like shot up with it and he gets beefy as all hell. And when Dr. Pamela Isley discovers this, uh, Woodrow kills her. But she arises from her planty grave as Poison Ivy, a woman made mostly of plants with poisonous lips, who is uh, pheromonally alluring to men and can kill them with a kiss. Also, it would probably be alluring to men anyway, because it's Uma Thurman in like a leaf bikini mm-hmm. for most of the movie. 
in in the best corsets that money could buy. Mm -hmm. These three groups converge at a diamond auction that Batman (laughs) has set up as a sting to try and get Mr. Freeze. Uh, Poison Ivy decides this is the great, the best time for her to meet Batman and Robin and hopefully like seduce them, kill them, whatever. Unclear exactly what she wants to do with them. But she wants to save the world for plants. So these three all converge at the thing. Poison Ivy starts playing Batman and Robin against each other with her special horny dust. (laughs) Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. she's attracted to uh, Mr. Freeze, who is not into it because he only wants to fuck his not-quite-dead wife. That's it. Not even Vivica A. Fox. But they eventually decide to join forces against the bat and the bird. Meanwhile, Barbara Pennyworth? Alfred's yeah, niece? I think so. Alicia <laughs> yeah. Silverstone, yeah. From London. Barbara Horowitz is back from Oxbridge Academy. She got kicked out for doing too many sick wheelies in her on her motorcycle. Um, mm-hmm. So she's living at Wayne Manor. She is indicting... Bruce Wayne for keeping an indentured servant, essentially, for for not being nice to Alfred. Uh, And she starts stealing Robin's motorcycles to go on cool races for money because she's going to get take Alfred away from all of this because dun dun dun, he's dying of McGregor syndrome. Okay. (laughs) Bethy, this is really good. I feel like I'm listening to The Shadow or something. You could narrate a radio program. (laughs) This is definitely the voice that would be used in that, you know. <laughs> Who knows what lurks in the hearts of men is, I guess, the shadow. Who knows? Anyway. <laughs> uh, Uma Thurman busts Mr. Freeze out of jail, tries to kill his wife and blame it on Batman and Robin. Batman and Robin realize that they're being played by Uma Thurman, and they join forces with Alicia Silverstone's Batgirl, they defeat Poison Ivy and confront Mr. Freeze at the Gotham Observatory, which he has rigged to be a freeze ray that will freeze all of Gotham. And it's up to them to un- reverse the threes within 10 minutes or else all of Gotham will fucking die. And they do. And it's all fine. End of movie. They save Alfred. Yes. Because uh, he has cured stage one of McGregor syndrome. He just needs to cure it three more stages and then he can get his wife back. Yeah. It's important though, because that's really the heart of the movie. It really is. Ben, what did we what did we miss? What do listeners need to know? I mean, I think that covered all the important beats. I didn't mention Coolio. There's Coolio's in this yeah. movie. Coolio's in there. He's uh he's kind of like the Tej of uh of this film and that he's sort of hosting the uh, race set piece that happens partway into the movie. That's honestly one of the only, like, sort of underwhelming action set pieces in the movie, just in comparison to the bonkers, like, first 15 minutes, which is a chase scene that, like, starts in a museum and goes up into almost space and then skydives down along rooftops into another building and then through catacombs. Uh, Seriously, the first 15 minutes of this movie is bonkers but i do think that covers it it's like you got you got this big plot about uh world domination with a tragic uh villain 
and then also a villain who has noble goals and is only a supervillain because of uh, being essentially abused by her boss, um, but makes makes more ethically unsound choices, ultimately turning her into the more villainous of the two villains over the course of the story. And in the end, it's the whole world at stake, but starting with Gotham. So it's it's a more manageable scope. And then you've got this emotional family story about a Bruce Wayne who's over his parents' death and is instead focusing on the family he does have that he doesn't want to lose. Him and Alfred say, I love you to each other in this movie. As far as I know, the only movie in the Batman franchise where Bruce Wayne and Alfred just say, I love you to each other, which makes sense. It is a father and son relationship. Um, and it's very sweet. And I tear up every time I watch that scene in this movie. And ultimately, it's about, uh, you know, Bruce learning the last lesson he really needs to learn from his father figure, Alfred, in order to be himself a decent father figure to both Robin, this boy that he essentially adopted, um, who's like maybe 10, 12 years younger than him. And, uh, and ultimately Alfred's wayward niece as well. So Alfred manages to like preserve his family and give Bruce the last lesson he needs. And then in the end, everybody wins because he lives, which is a sweet ending. It's a sweet ending you want when you're watching just a fun popcorn flick. It's perfect. Who could argue with that? It's like, you know, you get this wonderful emotional story within this massive high stakes action uh, adventure extravaganza that still has time for tons of just like extra little storylines and set pieces that are just because they're cool and they're fun and they they involve characters that you're already attached to. So there are stakes. And uh, and on top of all of that, it's campy and funny. I think it's a perfect film. I, I do. I really like the scene where where Alfred and, and Bruce say that they love each other. And I like the idea of getting into the last piece of the puzzle that Bruce slash Batman needs is to be able to, like, trust and become the patriarch of the Bat fam. But I do feel like maybe Chris O'Donnell was miscast. Chris O'Donnell's yeah. never, he's never been good in anything. It's not a good You don't have to, to agree look, with okay. me. But Dude, what about Vertical funny. Limit? Oh, yeah, he's incredible in Vertical Limit. <laughs> okay, one time. He gets one. Um, but that does, for me, make what should be a much more, as you're saying, like emotional part of the story feel a little bit too sitcom roommate vibes. Like, this is your side of the Batcave, this is my side of the Batcave, I better not see you on this side of the Batcave. I think the screenplay, too, by, by Akiva Goldsman um, definitely gives Bruce and Alfred a lot more nuance. And honestly, some very there's some brilliant monologues from Alfred in this movie, lines from Batman that are very revealing. Um, but yeah, the, the Batman-Robin relationship does wind up being kind of one note. I do think it was kind of smart the way that they use Poison Ivy kind of creating tension between them because there are some fights where you're like, this is such a weird thing for them to be fighting about to this level of drama. And then the fight inevitably turns into being about poison Ivy and you're like, Oh, it's still, it's all affected by the pheromone. And I think the movie actually does a very like mature job of not putting too fine a point on that. It just kind of happens naturally over the course of the argument that happens honestly twice. So it it does get a bit repetitive, but yeah, I think maybe it's a little bit Chris O'Donnell's performance and a little bit that he didn't have quite as much to work with to begin with as much as the other characters in the movie. Um, I think it's also a problem Alicia Silverstone deals with in, in the movies that it's 
those are the two like most underwritten characters where they don't really have the camp fun. They also don't really have as much like heart and nuance as the, uh, the Bruce Alford storyline. I still would really have loved to see what Marlon Wayans would have done in that role. Cause that would have just been such a different performance from what Chris O'Donnell brought to it. He was supposed to be Robin at one point. He was cast in Batman returns as Robin by Tim Burton and that storyline wound up getting cut in pre-production before production began. But he would have been Robin in the like Tim Burton verse. I almost yeah. feel like Marlon Wayans in that role would be enough, maybe not when the movie came out, but today, to get it over the line for most people. I feel like if he was there, people would be like, oh, Batman and Robin is this weird, campy thing that was misunderstood in its day, but totally rocks. Having someone more known for comedy in that movie, I do think probably would have helped. Because they didn't really cast anyone who was known necessarily for being funny. I mean, I guess Arnold had done a lot of comedies by this point, so that's not necessarily true. Um, I think he's really funny in the movie, and I think he knows that he's being funny. Like, I watched Last Action Hero last night, right after I watched Batman and Robin, and I think he has a real knack for the deadpan, self-aware Arnold thing, which I think is really hard for a, a, Mm -hmm. a star like him to pull off. And especially considering that he was under, like, such such prosthesis and like the he was like inhaling like the glitter from his makeup it was making him sick <laughs> he was in full like i don't even want to be around anymore from i think you should leave <laughs> yeah that was that he was there but he was still like delivering that performance through that makeup and that like mech suit he's the in. <laughs> texture on his skin is so cool mm-hmm. in this movie like that makeup job in particular is so cool but I agree. They also they they did a pretty good job. I don't know if Arnold lost weight for this movie or if it's just the way they they costumed him, but he looks gaunt. Like he does not look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, like jacked. It's it's funny because just coming off of Jungle Cruise, where I do think the movie kind of struggles making The Rock the underdog because he looks like four dudes stapled together at this point. They do a pretty good job of like making Mister Freeze seem genuinely vulnerable when he's outside of the suit because Arnold doesn't look very big at all. Like he looks kind of thin he looks unwell obviously the makeup helps a lot with that but uh i was impressed too because it was it was a lot it was not a vanity performance which maybe you would expect from um any other action star of his level ever i like that he has a a line of dialogue about that ben where he says to poison Mm -hmm. ivy he bought the suit in a size too small because it has a like a slenderizing effect and that's him being funny as as victor freeze yeah yeah i mean like if stallone was cast in that role he would have how shredded he was would have been a part of the story like he wouldn't have gotten gaunt for it and obviously the rock i don't i think it's too late to turn that ship around it would take too long to get him back up to like rock size if he was ever to like try to lose weight for a role at this point but i i mean every time i'm like this is really like arnold does kind of like he sounds like arnold you know it's arnold but he also kind of disappears a little bit like it it just kind of becomes a different thing which is pretty impressive for like one of the most famous people to ever live who's got one of the most distinctive voices and looks period (laughs) this movie takes the mr freeze backstory from the animated series and i think it takes like a lot of a lot of its like cues from the animated series i find that really interesting how you know back in the day mr freeze was just one of many cold themed villains but then because he's in like the first episode of the animated series now he's like the guy and like the saddest guy and like the wooby of the rogues gallery. 
Really did Sub Zero? Did Sub Zero come out after Batman and Robin? The animated film or yeah. the Mortal Kombat? Yeah. Character? The, the animated uh, film. Sorry. The uh, Mortal Kombat character was first. The animated film came out, I think, right after Batman and Robin was out in theaters. Okay. I think it was like the same year or or the next year. Yeah, cool. I think that it was timed to be released around the same time because people thought that this movie was going to pop off the way that all the others had. And when it didn't, that kind of scuppered some of the plans for Sub-Zero as well as plans for Batman and Robin roller coasters that were being rolled out at Six Flags. It kind of fucked those up too. But they did build them, right? Because they got a fuckload of those... At the park. Yeah, if they built one, but they were going to have, like, a bunch more and, like, a Mr. Mm-hmm. Freeze one and, like, but it just, like, it, it, it leaves, like, the DC land as, like, especially, like, a Magic Mountain, like, really frozen at, like, really Batman forever, even more than Batman and Robin. To be fair, though, them doing, like, a Mr. Freeze roller coaster probably would have amounted to, like, we made a blue roller coaster. <laughs> and there's a sign at the front that says Mr. Freeze. You don't think they'd even put in, like, an extra AC unit to make it, like, a little bit cooler in the queue? No. No, you're they right. They would have put, like, a big concrete polar bear that's unpainted, like, in the queue. <laughs> I, I have a question, not to get us too off track, but I feel like... If you look at big movies in a pre-Scream landscape, general audiences had a really hard time with movies that sort of defied their genre expectations or sort of merged different genres. Do you think that Batman and Robin, if it had come out 10 years later, if it had come out before like Marvel really exploded, if people would have been able to connect to a movie like this? Or do you think that it was just, it's just, it's, it's too queer, it's too strange, it's too colorful? I think, honestly, homophobia would do this movie in no matter when it was released. I think people have issues to this day. Like, well, and it's hard to tell because Marvel's become so predominant and those are can be quite fucking dour. When things are not taking themselves seriously, people feel dumb for liking them. And they need, like, the thing that Marvel and now Star Wars 2, like, chug, chug, chugs along with is this sense of import. This sense that the stakes are so high and somehow you are helping by watching these movies. Like, you're helping save the world. And you don't get that sense with Batman and Robin. It's just like, this is this is one set of adventures for these guys. And it's a nice time. And you're going to have a nice time watching it. And that's not enough stakes nowadays. And especially with, like, as we said, like, the queerness and, like, the bat nipples that people hated. It was just like a bridge too far for people who already were feeling a little weird about liking a comic book still. I wonder if for some people it's a somewhat justified fear that they're not in on a joke, so the joke must be on them. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Because I do think that that's part of the reason that a lot of people don't like self-referential or campy um, or less serious superhero movies is a fear that like, it, if it's having too much fun... If it's having fun in a way where I become suspicious and might be making fun of me because I don't totally get the joke, I will reject it wholesale. So it's easier to accept like a more dour, grim superhero story because it's easier to process what's happening. Like you're going to get it. You're not going to miss the joke. That's raising a really interesting point that I've never thought about that. Like I, I sometimes get annoyed or frustrated with people being defensive like i don't get the jokes it must be on me but no sometimes the joke is on those people so they might be right to be defensive about it (laughs) yeah maybe 
Maybe some of the things I like are just mean and not for everybody. <laughs> I do think though, I don't I don't think Batman and Robin is alienating in its intention. I, I think Joel no. Schumacher was probably hopeful that his vision of Batman would connect with people, and I think he was probably disappointed when it didn't. I think he was maybe too optimistic. I think he was notably disappointed, because I think I remember a few years ago, before he passed away, he he had basically issued an apology for this movie and said, like, it's all my fault because every decision and all the stuff that people rejected came from me and i think he did even say like uh a lot of the stuff people don't like about the movie wouldn't be there if i wasn't a gay man which is like oh man (laughs) that makes me really um, sad like genuinely very sad me too but i you know this is this is also contextualized in an interview where he i think was also like looking back at his whole career and talking about how lucky he felt and how much he accomplished but i do think he he also did kind of clock that it's a very flamboyant, very campy, very like fun and um silly but also like emotionally open like way to tell that superhero story like it's it's not um you know it's not crossfit batman from like more recent batman movies it's it's not like that it's different and um i think he probably especially since batman begins dark knight dark knight rises were like such massive hits following his Batman movie. I think he keyed into like, oh, the things that people didn't like about it are just the things that I find personally appealing because of who I am. Um was was what I was gleaning from that interview. Mm-hmm. It didn't sound like it, you know, it didn't sound like he was too torn up about it because he seemed to have a pretty realistic impression of like how much he did accomplish in his career. But it definitely like, yeah, he didn't, you know, he got to do some bigger movies after that, but it definitely never got as big as like uh, the 80s were for Joel Schumacher after after Batman and Robin. I mean, he got to do Phantom afterwards. Um, I'm trying to think of whatever, like, whatever, what other like big yeah. Joel Schumacher movies came out afterwards. But I will say the number 23 resonated deeply with kids mm-hmm. of my uh, high school. Yeah. They were in a top secrets. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that in hindsight, it's like, how could anyone think that this movie would go over with mainstream audiences because of everything we just discussed but you know schumacher had every reason to think people would go for it because people did respond to the camp elements in like the lost boys that movie is also Mm -hmm. incredibly arch and uh homoromantic yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and you know people loved tim burton's batman which is also a very stylized world very silly somewhat campy people you know nobody was until Batman and Robin, I don't know if people were as slagging off about the 60s Adam West show. Like, they'd be talking about it being campy. But it was a very popular show, and it still runs in syndication. It's not like it's been erased from the world or anything. Yeah. And and the stuff we were talking about of bringing in, like, Mr. Freeze's backstory, the fact that Poison Ivy is right, and the big corporations are to blame and should be punished for destroying the that Earth. That stuff's really interesting now. It's especially different Especially now. after that last climate change report. Yeah, it's like, all the scenes where she, you know, yeah, sees that the toxic chemicals were made by Wayne Enterprises and, like, confronts him directly, and he's like, sorry people's ability to refrigerate their food's got to come first and uh if i do anything to help the earth then everyone will freeze and and burn to death and it's like that's you're making an intellectually dishonest (laughs) 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 he's kind of a prick this whole movie yeah how do we feel about about clooney's version of batman slash bruce wayne 
I, I I love Clooney so much. I I I, I uh, ride or die Clooney style. Um, I, I like him in most things. I think you said that uh, Schwarzenegger and Uma Thurman are in different movies. I think they are maybe in different movies, but they're in different movies that both have a really high camp sensibility. I think a lot of times when George Clooney is delivering lines as Bruce Wayne, he's in a different movie. Mm -hmm. He's in like a really standard straight shooting Clooney mode in a way that sometimes separates him from the project. Because he can go bigger or he goes bigger later when he's in like, oh, brother, where art thou? Yeah. I think when he's... I think when he's wearing the Batman costume, he has more confidence to embrace the camp and to say things that are silly. I think there's a weird meta element where he has this sort of Batman masked confidence. And then when it's off, he's just straight Clooney. But Ben, I wonder how you feel about this. Well, yeah, it was his first big movie. He was like uh, coming off of ER and it was like this was his chance, you know, and he was following up Val Kilmer and Batman Forever and Batman Forever was a big hit and people were not psyched that Kilmer wasn't coming back. And so I think rightfully he was anxious about how people would receive the movie. I mean, ultimately, you, you know, it, it wasn't received very well. But yeah, I do think it's like nerves. Is, you're probably spotting the right thing. I think when it's just him, he was like, I have to play this debonair, cool, collected, low-key, so that if this movie does wind up being a huge bomb, I don't like stick out too much. <laughs> um, or people can't can't pick on me for like overacting. But yeah, I agree that when he's Batman, like he's a lot more confident, which I, you know, here's the thing. That's a good thing. (laughs) It's a, it's a big part of the Batman story. So I think it does come across it. Like when he's Batman, he's just a lot more there. And when he's Bruce Wayne, he's very like, you know, trying to throw away his lines, smiling through grief and not like overacting the sadness and yeah, but he sells the important moments. I think he's not my favorite Batman, but I do think. He does a better job than people give him credit for, but I, I agree that like he doesn't. It's not a very confident performance. I I agree with all of that, but the thing that I came to watching it this most recent time is I don't think Clooney can play a cop. Not that Batman technically is a cop, but the idea of of Clooney as a high status order keeper doesn't doesn't work for me. He is a scamp. George Clooney is at heart a scamp. He's a rapscallion. He's a prankster. He has a pig. He's so true. pranking Richard Kind every damn day. He's on a Vespa with uh, Randy Gerber. But his there. star power is the fact that that innate quality is overcoated with like a really sexy elegance. Mm-hmm. Like he manages to do all of that. But sorry, back to you. Yeah, but that like mm-hmm. that's none of those things... Batman is sexy, but Batman is not necessarily interested in sex. Batman is a dad. Batman is a cop. Batman is a pro wrestler. And I think those are three things that are weird for Clooney to play. Just not a great type. I think so. He's good casting for Bruce Wayne. He's not good casting for Batman, in my opinion. And yet he's better at Batman. That's really interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if he played Bruce Wayne today, he would do a much better job. I honestly think George Clooney could hit pretty hard in a Nolan Batman movie mm. uh, as Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's got that thing, but maybe I'm wrong. I I think you're right about that. I just, is in this, I think that he could work in a Nolan Batman because the Nolan Batman has different 
is playing like different notes of Batman. Yeah. Totally. But for for this mm-hmm. version of Batman where he's like an almost like an adjunct of the Gotham City Police Department and his and, and he's also just like the paterfamilias of all of this all of the orphans that happen to live at Wayne Manor. Those are things that I don't think Clooney is particularly the guy for. I see it. Who would have been who would have been the best dad Batman? Who's the best bat dad? Who can really crush bat dad? I feel like the big gorilla who played uh, Harry and Harry and the Hendersons could oh, be yeah. a pretty cool dad. John Lithgow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think about some TV dads that I feel like bring could bring punching in. Brian Cranston. <laughs> Peter Grip Peter Griffin. Yeah. Malcolm era, Brian Cranston. Um <laughs> oh, a Brian, a Brian Cranston Batman would be insufferable. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be the worst. I, I there, there are roles I love him in. I still worship at the altar of Breaking Bad. I think it's great, but he has a, a limited range. I mm-hmm. was re-watching Clerks, the animated series, a couple days ago, and Brian... So you think Kevin Smith, maybe? <laughs> for sure. <laughs> or Affleck then, just not when he did it for that script. Honestly, that could work. Never mind. But Brian Cranston does voices on that cartoon and so every time i every he time really? he like pops up it was before he, it was before he got malcolm in the middle he was just doing additional voices on the clerks animated series and power rangers and so every time i go oh that's this, so this sick. brian cranston <laughs> what that's the show where the second episode is a clip show with flashbacks to the first episode right correct that's such a good bit i that's like that I, i've never yeah. seen it but that sounds like a, a cool idea it's a really funny bit. Yeah, I saw Clerks animated series before I saw Clerks, so there's stuff wrong with me. <laughs> I think I did too, actually. I also saw Batman and Robin before I saw any of the other Batman movies. Mm. So I'm pretty sure I saw Returns, then the Nicholson one, then Forever and Robin in theaters. I'm pretty sure. Uh, but as far as people who are playing the tone that I think Schumacher is going for, we should spend some time on Uma Thurman. I think she's incredible in this movie. Yeah. I love everything she's doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a physicality that's so confident. She knows exactly the movie she's in, and it's so fun to watch. Also, not to get way off in the weeds, but this is, we're watching movies and sitting at a bar. Uh, Maya Hawke's performance in Stranger Things takes when it gets really heightened it takes direct cues from lots of uma thurman's line deliveries in this and i hadn't mm-hmm. I, I, mm-hmm. that wouldn't have occurred to me but revisiting it i was like oh that's that's definitely her daughter i also think uma takes a lot of cues from michelle pfeiffer's performance in in batman returns i think there's a there's a camp quality that she completely throws herself into um where a lot of the delivery, a lot of the line reads, and part of this is probably in that, like, well, it's a it's an additional sex pot villain in like a Batman movie, um, and they give her a lot of similar material, but I think um, she nails it. I mean, it, honestly, it's like there there are so few movies that have come out in our lifetimes where there was this sort of hyper stylized tone that an actor really like locked into and nailed. I think of Speed Racer, where it's like. Mm-hmm. That's a big cast, and almost everyone in the movie was like, I can do live-action anime for children. I got this, <laughs> and, like, pulled it off. Seeing John Goodman get on board with that movie, you're like, oh, the Wachowskis, they got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's incredible in that movie. 
honestly like the whole cat christina ricci also amazing oh, at speed racer yeah. i could talk about speed racer for forever but um the uh, uma uma like really there was a very specific ask reaching back to a style of acting in a, in a kind a level of camp that had not been done in like a big movie in a long time and she completely nails it i think this time i was specifically i've always been in love with with the Poison Ivy performance that is, yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer, Eartha Kit, like doing this vixen thing very intentionally, very presentationally. But I was blown away this watch with her first scene where she's just talking into a little tape recorder as like the nerd before she mm. has like the, you know, take down your hair, take off your glasses, get injected full of poison makeover. Classic. And she's nailing that too, because that's like a different, like 40s stock character and but she's crushing that one too and then she just flips it when she comes back out i'll also give her credit and this is also credit to a lot of performances and a lot of kids movies her performance would fit in just fine in a lot of kids movies at the time that were marketed to a exclusively to a younger audience and people don't really give enough credit to like the villains in movies like blank check or home alone where it's mm-hmm. like you're your job is to deliver a live action cartoon in a way that's that doesn't feel uncomfortable to watch. And she really yeah, from that first frame, especially in those first scenes before she's like an actual supervillain when she's supposed to be like just a scientist. But a scientist who's like, yeah, frazzled in like a screwball comedy cartoon kind of way, and she yeah, completely delivers. We talked already about the the first fifteen minutes, the Natural History Museum heist bonkers but we could we could spend more time what is this the hockey team from hell god damn it o'donnell i i love that sequence i think that sequence is amazing i really really love the scope of it the way the gadgets are just like they keep building it they're like bat bomb bat wing and they're just they just keep going for it i love the 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 ice skates that pop out of their feet and they look at each other and wordlessly they seem to telekinetically communicate it's time for ice skates um (laughs) i love that (laughs) Uh, I love how they're playing ice I'll, hockey with a diamond as the puck is like a, a giant cartoon diamond as the puck is great too. There's also some really great like oh they throw this massive gun up and it gets stuck on this platform, but that wouldn't ever happen. So we reverse the shot of it falling off the platform and it just looks really goofy. <laughs> um, love that stuff, and I think they even do like a classical like like slide whistle sound effect with it. Yes, um, they do. They do. They do. It's great. I don't want to finish this podcast without saying that Elliot Goldenthal fucking delivers such a great score in this movie. Mm -hmm. I love his Batman theme and the two Schumacher Batmans. Um, It's so like exciting and heroic and feels like an old radio serial score almost like. Yes. It it feels like a brother to like the Dick Tracy score from the 1990 Dick Tracy movie where it's like very like you get like hyped listening to it, but he also finds so much nuance in really there's only like a few themes in Batman and Robin that he just like really plays very subtly. It's not like hitting you over the head with it. Um, he really crushed it. I feel like one of the great unsung theme writers of that era of blockbuster <laughs> movies. I, I would also be remiss if I didn't say that when they're in the natural history museum and Mr. Freeze freezes a giant brontosaurus and it like mm-hmm. comes crashing down. And when it comes crashing down, they bury a like Jurassic Park dinosaur roar in the mix. <laughs> so, the, so there's the sound of like yeah, the metal do. crunching, but there's just like a little bit of T Rex roar in there for for spice. It's pretty great. 
so good. It's so good. <laughs> also, freezes freezes puns. Far and away, my favorite is when Batman and Robin are sort of fighting over Poison Ivy, and Mister Freeze arrives and says, "All right, everyone, chill." <laughs> and then he says it three times. Yeah, <laughs> chill, chill. I think my favorite so is good. is a similar one where he pops into the scene. I think it's at the gala which might be my favorite set piece because it has that like blue angel gorilla striptease moment mm-hmm. oh amazing that that was when i discovered sex at age four was watching <laughs> yeah. the yeah. dancing blue the gorillas. gorilla hand <laughs> yeah and then bane's in one he goes monkey word <laughs> <laughs> but when he when he pops into the scene he just says cool party and then just starts wreaking havoc everywhere it's wonderful. <laughs> I like how quickly he does kind of like run out of puns in that movie mm-hmm. and then just says cool party or why don't you chill like 10 or 11 times in the movie. And it honestly just keeps getting better every time. I never get sick of it. You, you can't tell if it's a shortcoming of Akiva Goldsman's writing or a keen awareness that that is a funny choice. <laughs> mm, yeah, I think it's... Former, I think it's mostly but... a keen awareness. Yeah. I did hear, there was a rumor for a long time that there was a draft where Mr. Freeze's dialogue was very Shakespearean and elaborate. And once they cast Arnold, they changed it to just puns. <laughs> um, Which is so I much I don't necessarily better. believe it. Yeah. Right, yeah. Because it, it wouldn't even really fit with a lot of the movie if it was necessarily Shakespearean. I don't know. I mean, Alfred does have some speeches that are like pretty poetic and there are certainly like a hundred poison ivy monologues, but I don't know. I like to think that from conception, it was oh, we're doing ice puns. Yeah, because Mister Freeze in the cartoon isn't that highfalutin in his language. He's very taciturn. He's he's not doing as many puns, but he's also mm-hmm. not doing grand monologues all the time. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Alfred, this might be my favorite Alfred. Of all of the Alfreds. Oh, a hundred percent. I get weirdly yeah. mad when Alfred is Cockney. I'm like, no, he has to be a fancy butler. <laughs> he gotta speak fancy. RP. It's important to me for some reason. I I actually I really like his perspective in this movie of uh I think they ask him at a certain book because because it is the first movie where like Batgirl kind of brings up like, hey, he's been your butler for forever. Like he's basically a servant. Like that's not cool. He's not family if he's like making your coffee and making you dinner. And then at a certain point, Bruce asks him like, do you you feel like you've wasted your life (laughs) taking care of me? And you kind of expect the answer to be, uh, you expect the answer to be like, no, you're my son or you're my family. So like I was happy to, to do it. And instead he gives a very like interesting and unusual answer because he says that he's been in the service of heroes and basically implies like everything he did was because he was very proud or at least in like his recent life, he was just very proud to be serving someone who was helping defending other people. The way he saw it was he was he was a part of it, which he is not literally a part of in this movie in the way that like the the Michael Caine Alfred is where he's like helping Bruce Wayne do detective stuff and like being his uh, sort of right hand man. Like Alfred is more of a typical Butler in this one. I want to say in like the first one or two Burton movies, he's a little more involved in, in the like day to day, but 
I thought it was really cool that he was basically like, no, I don't have any regrets because I helped like superheroes basically protect human beings. So I'm cool with it. I thought it was, uh, it's a surprising turn in a, in a scene that I thought was really nice. Yeah. And he cares. So Michael go. Yeah. Best. He cares so much about the being in service of heroes that he tries to like enlist his brother to, to carry on that legacy. Yes. His name is Wilfred. Is that it? I think so. And, and who's it's almost Alfred. Who's helping the Maharaja currently in a, in a moving court. Court, traveling court. So he's hard to reach. Yeah. I also noticed because I was looking at details. I didn't notice before watching it for the eight zillionth time that when he sends a message, to uh wilfred on the hard drive that he kind of expects barbara to open it's like eight gigs <laughs> it says like how much memory he's saving and i was like whoa that's like huge in 1997 <laughs> space like that would translate today to being like a hundred terabytes or more well, <laughs> like so yeah alfred can't help making himself into like a max headroom ui in in that cd rom and in the bat cave so he needs the Who space for that could yeah <laughs> i'm obsessed with with the uncle with the uncle alfred that exists within the computer of the bat cave <laughs> yeah i wonder what he's up to these days I wonder if he's become like a cool virus. Because yeah. <laughs> he can have like a conversation sort of with his niece. Because she's like, Uncle Alfred, it's me. And he's like, cool, I understand that. Me, a computer, can totally understand the concept of niece. And I've prepared yeah, Alfred developed a very advanced artificial intelligence. <laughs> yeah. It's simple. You know, like a butler does. Yeah. At that time, he was also doing, like, ROMs and, like, Juarez attacks and, uh, you know, all sorts of cool hacker shit. <laughs> yes. Alfred is lead hack source, for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, that's something that I get that does bum me out a little bit about this is Alicia Silverstone's Batgirl. It's like, I like this character, but I like the Batgirl that I know who is, like, a hacker and a redhead and the commissioner's daughter or niece, depending rather than Alfred's. Mm-hmm. I understand why they bring it to Alfred instead of to Commissioner Gordon, because it's so focused on the family in this movie. But um, watching Alicia Silverstone type at, like, two words per minute while she's trying out different passwords as, like, an Oracle stan hurts me. I found it relatable, personally. <laughs> but I get what you're saying. <laughs> I think you. I think you have to be paralyzed by the Joker before you mm-hmm. become a fast typer. Yes. That's part of it. But that was she was working out in the dojo, doing like those guitar strength, finger strength things, so they could get really mm-hmm. fast typing. It's a good way to circumvent the plans of the Joker by doing <laughs> uh, finger exercises. Yeah. Um, If y'all were to make like a perfect Batman movie, what villains would you want to see? Because you said earlier, Ben, that this is like, we're kind of getting near the end of like the A-list and like verging into B here. But like... I mean, I do think they were A-list villains. I just think that they'd already gotten through so many of the other A-list villains. Mm-hmm. There were only so many left to choose from, which I think is... I know, I know the plans, if they had done another one, it was going to be Scarecrow and then maybe Harley Quinn, who had kind of just shown up on the animated series in the yeah. in the few years prior. So they had clearly, like, they'd started to run out of the, like, big A-listers. Like, they probably would have had to get to, like, Clayface. I really want to see a Clayface movie. Because, again, I like the more monstery Batman villains. Like, a Man-Bat-Clayface Batman movie would be tight. Throw in Killer Croc. 
Oh hell yeah! I I was I was just gonna say Killer Croc. I I want a movie where Bruce Wayne, without all of his gear, is beneath Arkham Asylum, and he's uh, trying to elude Killer Croc, crawl style. That's the Batman movie. Yeah, I just want. crawling through shit water, like under Arkham <laughs> Asylum, and trying not to get eaten by an alligator man. That's that's my whole idea. I grew up in Florida, so I would find that to be a very relatable film. <laughs> I think Poison Ivy, I don't know if it's because of this movie or because of, as we've been talking about, living through climate catastrophe, but Poison Ivy is a favorite of mine and I think will always be because, yeah, she's right most of the time. She goes too Mm -hmm. far. And when she tries to uh, murder women, she's not a woman who supports other women in this movie. No. But she is correct about a big business needing to do anything to save the planet. We could use a touch of eco-terrorism sometimes, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha ha! It's a funny joke that we're saying. That somebody needs to be spiking some more trees again. Elf style, ha ha, funny joke. (laughs) This is is an eco-fascist podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, nature is healing dolphins in the canal. I feel like we did a pretty good job. Bethy. Yeah, I think we're. I think we did it. The only other thing I really want to talk about is Ivy's gloves with the nails are a reference to Chaparelli, but that's not important. And I just did it. Oh yeah, I guess they are. Or Scaparelli. I never know how to pronounce that. It's Scaparelli. Scaparelli. It's Buccemi, yeah. actually. It's pronounced Buccemi. Yeah. Speaking of speaking of references, I feel like tonight we had a really good time, which is something of a reference to. The work of Ben Mackler, which in my experience is is is, is feel good and guarantees a, pristine a buzz. transition. <laughs> yeah, dude. Um, ben, are you? Uh, I don't know if you've ever done anything goofy online, but if people listen to this podcast and they don't already yeah. know who you are, where should they find you? You can find me on Twitter.com at Ben Meckler. Um, that's B E N M E K as in combat L E R. Um. Amazon Mortal and, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can also listen to my podcast about Mortal Kombat. It's called Mortal Podcast. <laughs> With a K, and, right? Uh-huh. And um and I got some TV shows coming out, but I'm not allowed to talk about them, so please download Netflix, the application, and um you know, hopefully some some other stuff. Someday soon I'll be able to talk about. You, you do have a show though that is on netflix that people really I do. love uh i hope so it's called kipo in the age of wonder beasts i got to write a rap for jizza for that show and it was a dream <laughs> come true and also i think the show turned out pretty good um very proud of it yeah check that out if you like animation and, and action adventure stuff it's a good time bethy ben's online he does great work do you do great work online i do okay work online i'm not gonna big myself up too much uh i am on twitter at bethy bsqu and instagram at bethy squires uh thomas you're online somewhat i i am yes you ever get online you ever do any black hat hacking yeah i do uh actually every day (laughs) (laughs) i'm uh i'm on twitter um you can find me at at handsome underscore pal 
Um, and the show has a page too. I think on Twitter we're movie bar pod, and on Instagram we're movie bar underscore pod. All true. It's so funny. I've been I've been in my head pronouncing it movie bar pod, <laughs> but it makes more sense the way you said it. Oh, that's the, that's our mascot, movie bar pod. Yeah, the bar pod. Yeah, he's like a, he's like a Kakuna Pokemon guy, but yeah, con- distinct IP wise. Tripedal beer mug. Yeah. Great. Well, you know, our weekly sign-off is, it's uh, 9.29 p.m., and 29 minutes ago, the new Deaf Heaven record came out, so I'm going to go listen to that. <laughs> Is that true? I'm so it sorry true, yeah. that we've kept you oh, this far away for almost a whole half hour, Thomas. I no, that's, that's how much I love you guys. Listeners, you should know this is my favorite band, so hopefully by the time you listen to this, you won't look back at my feed and see that I'm deeply disappointed. Is that really how it's pronounced? Because I've been in my head pronouncing it D-E-A-Feven. But that, <laughs> when you, the way you say it does make a lot more sense. No, you're right. It's D-E-A-Feven. Um, I thought it was a D-E-A thing. And yeah. that Feven was maybe the main guy's name. Uh, and like always, we have the same sign-off every week, which is there is a Poison Ivy reference within the Dream Decorator expansion pack of The Sims 4. Whenever you do a garden room edition, it says, heck, I am Mother Nature inside of it. Now on Game Pass. Watching Movies at the Bar is edited by Colin Jenkins with show art by Lindsay Farrell. And that theme you hear at the top, that's Quentin Mulligan. <laughs>